2: This is Hold Your Fire, a podcast by the International Crisis Group. I'm Naz Modirzadeh.
3: And I'm Richard Atwood. The U.S. has left Afghanistan. On Monday night, the last American plane took off, ending the U.S.'s 20-year war against the Taliban. Taliban forces, wearing American military outfits and carrying U.S. weapons they seized from the collapsed Afghan army, entered and took control of the airport.
2: American uniforms, American guns. But these are Taliban special forces. They're in charge at Kabul airport. But
3: Taliban fighters celebrating victory over the force that swept them from power 20 years ago.
2: A lot has happened in Afghanistan over the past couple of weeks. The Taliban seizure of Kabul prompted tens of thousands of Afghans to flee the country. Many thousands more who wanted to get out have not been able to. After days of chaos at Kabul airport, a terrorist attack by the Afghanistan branch of the Islamic State, Islamic State Khorasan province, or ISKP, killed perhaps as many as 200 people. Among the dead were 13 US soldiers. Subsequently, an American drone strike appears to have killed a family of 10 civilians, including seven children.
3: Once again, the president promised the U.S. would respond to that bombing and followed through
2: with devastating drone strikes, which reportedly killed civilians, including children.
1: The local affiliate of Islamic State is the same group that carried out Thursday's deadly suicide bombings at the airport. The group considered the Taliban too liberal. These
3: attacks are so we did an episode on Afghanistan only a couple of weeks ago, but we thought that given everything that's happened since then, we'd talk again to Ibrahim Bakhis, one of our Afghanistan experts. And we're delighted also to welcome on Graham Smith, who's been working on and off with Crisis Group for many years on Afghanistan. We're going to talk about the Islamic State in Afghanistan, ISKP, and its brutal fight over the last few years with the Taliban. We're also going to talk about where things stand with the Taliban's formation of a government, the increasingly desperate humanitarian situation in the country, and how outside powers, governments in the region and the West have responded so far. Ibrahim, Graham, thanks so much for joining us.
0: Thanks for having us. My pleasure.
3: So could we start with
2: ISKP? Tell us a bit about them. Who are they? So ISKP, as you
1: mentioned, is the local chapter of the Islamic State. Uh, Now, uh, currently, ISKP, uh, the local chapter, is greatly diminished compared to It's heyday during the 2015 and 16. According to the latest UN sanctions monitoring report, they have about 1,500 to 2,200 fighters in Kunar and Nangarhar provinces. But they are decentralized overall and have cells operative in uh, major urban centers, for example, in uh, Kabul, Balkh, Kunduz and Jalalabad. Uh, Now, ISKP has always been different to the Taliban. They drew support mostly from the Salafist uh, base, which is present in Afghanistan and Pakistan. Even some of the Taliban that defected to the group did so on ideological grounds. Salafists uh, who had joined the Taliban were shunned by the Taliban leadership and only utilized as foot soldiers. Uh, So this bred animosity. And when ISKP did emerge on the scene, many of these Salafists defected from the Taliban and joined ISKP. Uh, Now, given this uh, Salafist appeal of ISKP, overall, I think we can say that it is able to recruit from the Salafist population in both rural and urban centers. uh, But also the fact that it is a Salafist is a a weakness as well, because Salafism is only followed by a small minority of the population, whereas the Taliban purport to uh, be a Hanafi movement, uh, which has centuries old roots in the country and is more acceptable to the general population.
3: You talk about ISKP as though it's mostly comprised of Afghans and yet there have also been stories of Pakistani militants, uh, some factions of the what was the Pakistani Taliban, TTP, that have also joined Islamic State. What, what should we make of those stories?
1: ISKP in its current iteration emerged when some former uh, TTP factions declared a local chapter following ISIS's uh, successes in Syria and Iraq. They were also joined by some Afghan Taliban commanders and fighters that were of Salafist orientation, as well as some foreign militant groups that were unhappy with the Taliban's vision for the future. For example, large numbers of the Islamic movement of Uzbekistan also defected and joined the local branch of ISKP. In terms of its trajectory, uh, ISKP quickly managed to establish bases in the eastern provinces of Jalalabad, which had uh, significant Salafist Uh, population as well as in Hilmand in the south and Farah in the west. The Taliban were easily able to crush them in Hilmand and Farah but struggled in Jalalabad. Uh, Most local Taliban in Jalalabad were also Salafist and unwilling to fight ISKP. Taliban had to bring in hardcore Sufi slash Hanafi commanders. ISKP also managed to make inroads in Kunar province. Uh, we saw further emergence of ISKP in the north in Fariab and Saripul provinces around 2016 and 17. Uh, Taliban seemed to have quelled ISKP in the north around 2019 following heavy clashes over a course of two years. Uh, in Jalalabad and Kunar. we saw kind of multi-pronged offensives which involved the Afghan security forces pushing ISKP out of some areas. They were getting squeezed by Taliban fighters in other areas. And the U.S. was bombarding the group whenever they saw an opportunity. So in 2020, ISKP had lost most territorial control and kind of shifted more towards covert operations that we are seeing playing out today.
3: Ibrahim, could I just push a little bit more on this This idea of Islamic State sort of recruiting predominantly among Salafis and whether that's likely to, to continue? I mean, there's this sort of theory now that one of the big challenges that the Taliban faces is if it, you know, if it does things that people in the movement, especially the rank and file commanders that have been fighting for a long time, if it does things that they don't like, they may splinter off. And one option for them when they splinter off is to join ISKP. I mean, what do you make of that argument as a whole? And sort of more broadly, couldn't ISKP simply become a vehicle for people that are disaffected, uh, irrespective of of whether they're sort of from Salafi communities or from others? Uh,
1: You're absolutely right. And that seems to be the ISKP strategy. Since the Doha negotiations started, they have been trying to position themselves as the real resistance movement in Afghanistan and encouraging Taliban fighters and commanders to defect from that movement and join ISKP. Now, one thing I want to point out is that the Taliban, uh, because of how it it historically emerged, was always rooted in kind of rural uh, Islamism and in rural clerical ideology. And they have, uh, up until now, they have struggled to attract recruitment in the urban centers of uh, Afghanistan, uh, even as an insurgency, because it was primarily based in rural uh, areas. Now we are seeing the Taliban making initial attempts at gathering support in urban centers as well.
2: And Ibrahim, if I could ask you a follow up, what do you think ISIS KP was trying to gain from this attack on the airport? What was their goal?
1: I, I, I would say that uh, the goal was very much to show that it was still present and potent. Uh, in some ways, for ISKP, this was too good an opportunity to miss because they could target uh, both the Taliban and shattered the myth of the Taliban that they were able to bring security, while also distinguishing themselves as a group that continues to fight foreign troops, uh, unlike the Taliban, which ISKP has framed as a, quote, deviant militia
2: that serves U.S. interests in the country. Over the past weeks, the U.S. has actually been working and even sharing intelligence with the Taliban. On the one hand, of course, that makes sense because the Taliban are also trying to prevent attacks on and secure the airport. On the other hand, it seems quite extraordinary, having fought the movement for decades, that they are now working together. Graham, how unprecedented is this? How should we understand this uh, recent cooperation?
0: I mean, there are some precedents in the the story that Ibrahim just told you about the, the Taliban's efforts against ISKP actually are the roots of some of that security cooperation between the Taliban and the United States. There were some pretty dramatic scenes, for example, in the northwest of the country, in the place called Jhaosjan province, as a, a self-declared ISKP group, a kind of a splinter militia that had been fighting the Taliban. The United States and the Taliban seem to have reached a kind of gentleman's agreement about Um, the United States not bombing the Taliban as they massed fighters um, to surround that group uh, and attack them. And so, you know, you had these kind of moments during the peace process while the uh, United States and the Taliban were sitting down across the table from one another in Doha that they did uh, find a few things they agreed on, and one was a mutual hatred of, of ISKP. But, you know, there was nothing like the kind of on the ground security cooperation that we had seen in recent weeks in Kabul, where a little stretch of road leading to the airport would be manned by uh, both Taliban and uh, American forces. But, yeah, it was a very strange little window of time, which is now closed with the departure of of American troops on the ground.
3: So the Taliban clearly fighting ISKP, viewing it as as an enemy and really arguably the biggest security challenge at the moment that the Taliban faces. Uh, The US briefly sharing intelligence and cooperating with the Taliban uh, as it tries to extract uh, US citizens, other foreigners and Afghans that want to leave from the airport. And yet the Taliban still with ties reportedly to Al-Qaeda. Now, the Taliban pledged that they wouldn't allow any group including al-Qaeda to use afghanistan to plot attacks abroad that was part of the agreement the 2020 february february 2020 agreement that the taliban had with the us but by all accounts there are still connections between the taliban and al-Qaeda what do we make of sort of what the taliban al-Qaeda relationship is going to look like in the in the months ahead
0: i think it really remains to be seen the, the way that the outside world Uh, chooses to address the concerns of the Taliban as they try to set up a government will probably uh, shape the way the Taliban respond to the concerns of the outside world. So if we want, for example, help on counterterrorism, there will be things that the Taliban want. And so this will continue to be a negotiation. I would say that during the negotiations between the United States and the Taliban that resulted in the February 2020 deal, during those negotiations, the Taliban expressed a bit of skepticism about the West's understanding of who is a terrorist. And the Taliban um, wasn't necessarily all that comfortable you know, doing sort of capture-kill operations on behalf of the Americans just because they appear on some American list. On the other hand, I think they took to heart the concerns from the international community about uh, Afghan soil being used to attack other countries. And so you, you do see that language very, very painstakingly hammered into the US Taliban agreement, naming al-Qaeda uh, as one of the groups that will be controlled or reigned in. But the Taliban are very lawyerly in their understanding of that agreement. I don't think you will see the Taliban you know, arresting al-Qaeda um, and shipping them off to the United States. I think you will see the Taliban strongly discouraging jihadi groups from taking any actions that would bring down the wrath of the international community upon them once again, uh, as happened after 9-11. Because uh, some of those Taliban negotiators in Doha who made that deal, they were you know, personally in touch with al-Qaeda uh, before 9-11, and they felt personally betrayed by al-Qaeda uh, because they, they seemed to think that Osama bin Laden had given them assurances that nothing like this would happen.
1: I'll just add a couple of points as well. Like, despite the fact that the Taliban, as Graham pointed out, hasn't uh, condemned uh, Osama bin Laden or al-Qaeda or broken ties with them publicly, uh, why the U.S. might still be comfortable with uh, some of the assurances they've received so far. Uh, I think it's to do with the evolution of al-Qaeda. Uh, Al-Qaeda is n- much more decentralized and local chapters have a significant autonomy uh, with the leadership kind of providing more general guidance the other factor is that, other than Zawahiri, most of the top leadership is outside the Afghanistan-Pakistan borderlands. Uh, in Afghanistan, uh, uh, they really are operating through the local branch, which is the Al Qaeda in Indian subcontinent.
3: Ibrahim, that's such a such a great point. And I mean, as you say, over the past decade, well, really since the since uh, Zawahiri took over from Bin Laden, and since the Arab revolutions. Uh, Al Qaeda has really sort of focused on on sort of local revolutions. It's sort of empowered its affiliates, it's a, who, you know Al Qaeda's identity now is, is sort of more vested in its uh, in its affiliates than in its global nature. At least that's one in you know, that's one interpretation. Obviously, people other people disagree with that, but uh, but I think certainly that the affiliates have become increasingly increasingly powerful. But uh, I mean, in that light, if you think of Al Qaeda in Afghanistan. I mean, what are we actually talking about? What, what is it now? I mean, it's a, it's a bunch of individuals. It's a fighting unit, you know, fighting alongside the Taliban, strengthening them on front lines. I mean, how should we even understand al-Qaeda in Afghanistan? Well, there's a, a,
1: a, quite a remarkable paucity of information when it comes to al-Qaeda. What we can say is that in terms of the al-Qaeda central, there could be some figures that are still in the area, including perhaps Zawahiri, who could be in the border areas. But on the ground, the the most active we are seeing al-Qaeda presence that we are seeing on the ground is through their local chapter, which is the al-Qaeda and Indian subcontinent. Uh, And as far as we have been able to ascertain from Uh, fieldwork on the ground, Uh, uh, the picture is a bit murky. I would say that uh, in many ways, the Taliban, since uh, ISKP emerged and they became kind of a lot more... Uh, aware and cognizant of the fact that uh, these militant groups could rebel against the Taliban one day they've been taking steps to kind of dismantle uh, some of these groups they've been spreading them out geographically across uh, different parts of the country they've been embedding them into the main Taliban organization in order to be able to keep a better watch on them now i don't know exactly uh, i don't I couldn't say with certainty, and I don't know if anyone can, whether to what extent they have managed to do that with al-Qaeda in subcontinent. Uh, But that is a trend we have seen the Taliban exploring more and more over the past few years in order to try to uh, weaken these groups so that they're not able to act independently without Taliban authorization and assistance.
2: Graham, could I ask a follow-up on what you said earlier? You mentioned capture-kill operations by the Taliban. Is it your sense that part of the U.S.'s expectation is that the Taliban would indeed uh, engage in such operations against various jihadi groups that might be on the territory of Afghanistan?
0: Uh, Figures uh, who thought that they could have uh, an independent policy pursuing global jihad have been very carefully reined in by the Taliban and uh, told essentially that you have to follow our more modest national aims, that the Taliban really are keen on cementing uh, Islamic system inside the borders of Afghanistan, uh, and they don't want anyone to get in their way, uh, including Al-Qaeda. And this idea of monopoly on jihad has been really central to, uh, to the Taliban's ethos recently you saw a sort of a points of departure at various uh, key junctures. For example, in the fall of 2015, there was a kind of breakaway faction of the Taliban uh, under a gentleman named Ms. Mansour de Dula, uh who had attracted some uh, international jihadis to his cause, particularly Uzbeks. And there was bloody fighting within the Taliban movement. Hundreds killed reportedly, primarily in Zabul province. Um, and so, you know, it, it has been, sometimes through, through patient uh, explanation of uh, political goals, and sometimes through uh, really violent means that the Taliban have unified their movement. And that has included reining in some of the more extreme elements.
3: So, Graham, could we talk a little bit about the Hakani's? I mean, there's this sort of sense, and, and certainly there's, there's, there's people in the, in the US that sort of see the Haqqanis as something distinct from the Taliban, even though, one of the hakani's is the is one of the deputy leaders of the Taliban and and the movement itself says that it's part of the Taliban more broadly but how should we understand the sort of hakani's evolution over the past decade or so how should western countries view the threat the hakani's pose as something distinct from that of the Taliban
0: richard i think you and i remember very well living in in kabul at a time when the Haqqani name struck fear into uh, westerners like us you know, on the streets because every time there was a big explosion we were told that it was the the Haqqani network that had committed these things and uh, so yeah for i think for a lot of people the Haqqani brand is still synonymous with terrorism but a lot has changed really uh, over the years since Jalaladin Haqqani the father passed the reins to Sirajuddin Haqqani his son Siraj has really moved the Haqqani network from being pretty parochial and pretty focused on its base uh, amongst the Zadran tribe in the southeast uh, and tried to create a more national following. He, he set up these Katesra, uh, sort of uh, red units, um, uh, essentially the Taliban special forces. And these uh, units partnered with uh, local Taliban all across the country. Uh, We're talking about a vast geography, hundreds of kilometers north, south, east, west. And that made Siraj into a much more mainstream Taliban figure. In fact, he became the deputy leader of the Taliban. He put his name to an op-ed in The New York Times calling for peace
3: and there's a lot of stories about them now, what they call, what the Taliban call these red units that are now uh, so sort of omnipresent in, in Kabul that a lot of them are the Haqqanis. Is, is that right or is that overstated?
0: Yes, I think it is accurate to to look at the um, apparently very well-trained uh, Taliban forces in the Badri Brigade and these guys uh, who are now in the streets of Kabul and associate that with the Haqqanis because um, Suraj Haqqani has made uh, such an effort to train elite forces um, and these, uh, these red units have been really uh, a part of why the Taliban succeeded militarily so dramatically in recent months. I mean, they were able to deploy these red units north for some very surprising early victories. That was part of what built momentum for the movements uh, this summer as the Taliban took over.
2: So we've discussed the threat from al-Qaeda and from ISIS-KP. Let's move now to a very different uh, factor that potentially uh, is on the minds of the Taliban. What should we make of the Resistant movement in Panjshir. So, of course, Ahmed Masood, the son of the iconic Ahmed Shah Massoud, who fought the Taliban in the nineteen nineties, uh, has recently been in the news, as well as Amrullah Saleh, the former vice president. Uh, Ibrahim, let me first come to you uh, to to get your read on on this other uh, potential factor.
1: Well, as you pointed out, uh, there, there is a completely different type of resistance taking shape that's very localized. Uh, uh, resistance that's forming in the panchir uh, valley against the taliban and that's a very interesting and important development because there is a lot of distrust when it comes to the northern provinces generally but panchir province specifically and the taliban uh, they they fought bitter wars against each other uh, ahmad masood's father was killed by an al-qaeda Uh, suicide bomber, one of the earliest suicide bombings inside Afghanistan, and he was a formidable military commander who had continued to uh, inflict defeat after defeat on the Taliban. At, At the moment, there is, generally speaking, especially within the Taliban movement, there seems to be a lot of local pushback. Uh, against conceding too much to uh, the demands that uh, the resistance in Panjshir is making uh, and that primarily stems from grievances that uh, some of the segments in Afghanistan have uh, due to the outsized role that Panjshir played in the past 20 years and the Taliban have never in the past uh, history of 27 years managed to capture it so if it was able to resist for a long period uh, or for any length of time I think it has the potential to inspire more widespread resistance against the Taliban in other places uh, across the country. Now, uh, at the moment, the Taliban have taken a more, uh, they've been negotiating, but it doesn't look like the negotiations have gone uh, far enough to resolve the conflict. They are cutting supply lines to the province, including food. They've cut off Internet and phone lines to the province. Uh, I, I suspect that could prove counterproductive uh, because that could galvanize the local population uh, to rally behind Ahmad Massoud.
3: And Ibrahim or Graham, how do you rate the Panjshir resistance prospects for attracting foreign support?
0: Well, I think Ibrahim is right that um, it, the geography uh, is forbidding and it's possible that uh, just the human geography as well is an important factor. Um, the, the people of the Panjshir uh, might themselves, just ordinary folks, might resist the Taliban. Uh, their ability to to mount kind, any kind of meaningful resistance will, as you say, depend a lot on um, regional support. So we've seen, for example, uh, high-level bilateral meetings between the government of Tajikistan and the government of Pakistan, uh, in which reportedly the Tajiks were asking for an inclusive government in Kabul that would include high-level Tajik representation. If some kind of a deal there can be struck, then I would expect that in the absence of any support trickling down across the Amu Darya, then it would be really hard for the Panjshir to hold out. Um, but uh, on the other hand, if uh, regional actors such as the Tajiks start supporting uh, the rebels in the Panjshir, then, yeah, as as Ibrahim says, it could be a much longer-running, slow burn of an insurgency against the Taliban.
3: So let's come in a moment to the, to the role of, of, of Afghanistan's neighbours, of some of the regional powers. But could I ask first... Uh, Graham, you mentioned the, the, the government that uh, that the Taliban's forming. As yet, there is no uh, Taliban government. Why do you think it's taking so long? I mean, is it that they're sort of having discussions within the movement about what the, what the government's going to look like?
0: I know for a fact that the Taliban were shocked at how quickly the government collapsed. They weren't prepared to create a government um, the next day. And so, it's taking some time. Um, they've already appointed uh, a new head of the central bank. Uh, we hear rumors uh, about the name of a possible finance minister, um, but I think you can expect uh, government formation to be a slow process. I, I, I think that um, yeah, there was a lot of uh, a lot of haggling going on, a lot of horse trading, including with um, with regional international powers, because uh, there is pressure internationally and even some pressure regionally to form what is, quote unquote, an inclusive government. And no one seems to agree on on what that means exactly. Uh, the Taliban may be including some of their former enemies as a way of signaling to the international community that they are interested in some modicum of pluralism, you know, as a way of trying to, to gain uh, recognition and um, openness from the international community to avoid sanctions, maybe even to get donations. So let's see.
1: One final point I'll add is that the Taliban have never acted in haste, uh, especially when they're changing directions. For them, uh, maintaining the cohesion of the movement is of paramount importance, and they always seem to test waters within the movement whenever they, they're they going for a change in direction. Uh, so I, I suspect right now they would want to weigh the perspectives of local commanders before taking a leap and kind of uh, introducing concessionary moves as part of the new government.
2: Let me move us from Afghanistan to the region and ask you both to share with us your reflections on what regional governments are probably watching closely and what are some of the factors that might shape their positions moving forward. So China, Russia, Pakistan, Iran, I realize this is a huge question, but how do you see their positioning uh, given the events of the last two weeks? Uh, Let me go first to you, Graham.
0: Yeah, I mean, this has stunned the region, and you've seen some very strange sort of stop-and-start diplomacy as everyone makes calculations and then remakes calculations on the fly, adjusting to the Taliban's uh, rapid ascendance. So, for example, you know, when the Taliban seized border crossings, sometimes neighboring countries announced these borders would be sealed, moved troops to the border even, and then quietly reopened the borders once it became clear the the Taliban weren't going anywhere, and so goods are trickling back through again. And there's just a lot of pressure to be pragmatic, you know, to to allow the traders to do their work. So the 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 pressure on on Iran, the pressure uh, on Pakistan to to recognize a new government whenever it's formed will probably be significant just economically. Uh, Pakistan is is caught in a Strange place, because as a longtime sponsor of the Taliban, of course, they now have a lot more influence on the ground in Kabul. Um, But it's also a kind of a matter of be careful what you wish for, because uh, Pakistan now uh, finally has the Taliban in in Kabul. um, But the Taliban don't always do what Pakistan wants them to do. Um, and uh, there's a real perception problem for Pakistan in that uh, you know they've got another review of the Financial Action Task Force uh, coming up in October. Pakistan's desperately trying to get off the grey list, uh, trying to avoid sanctions as a state sponsor of terrorism. So it's difficult for Pakistan to maintain its good reputation globally and yet have all of the, the Taliban's actions sort of hung around their necks.
3: Graham, could I ask a follow-up? I mean, you mentioned uh, Pakistan and and Iran, but obviously China, Russia, also hugely important. And as you say, they've, obviously, one of their priorities is going to be the the transnational militancy piece that they share with the West. They've also pushed for inclusion, seemingly recognising that, you know, the Taliban, for a stable Afghanistan, it would be better if the Taliban at least have a government that isn't just Taliban. How important, do you think that that sort of inclusion piece is for for, for Beijing, for, for Moscow? I mean, how much is that going to shape their, their position on recognising a Taliban government once there is one?
0: I think both Beijing and Moscow have been increasingly pragmatic as it became clear that uh, the Taliban were gaining ground. You certainly saw that with the very high-level reception that Mullah Broder got on his most recent visit to Beijing. I think that um, there are... Certainly, some within the the new Taliban leadership who hope uh, to have good relations with both Moscow and Beijing, and you know these these relations have been going on for a very long time. Uh, the first uh, delegation that I'm aware of of Taliban that went to to Beijing was back in 2007. So these these conversations have been going on for quite a long time, and they're both, I think. All, all three of those actors are prepared to be pragmatic with one another. Uh,
1: just to add to that, uh, I, I think uh, regional countries generally. Uh, I have an increasing suspicion that they don't want a return of a pariah state that will uh, stunt regional economic integration and growth. Uh, I, I think they they are hoping to avoid that status for the Taliban dominated government, and, and they're trying to achieve that by a, kind of a two two-pronged policy. Uh, On the one hand, they're pushing back against more distant countries that might be more willing to kind of isolate and punish a Taliban-led government that doesn't respect basic uh, human rights. Uh, The other aspect is that they're pushing the Taliban to be more accommodating and inclusive so that they can argue for normalization of relations with this new government. At its core, I think regional countries are focused uh, almost exclusively on the Taliban honouring their counter-terrorism commitments more than anything else. Uh, I think they're willing to be a bit more lenient when it comes to the Taliban's social policies and how they treat their own citizens, uh, as long as the Taliban can guarantee a level of control over the transnational militant groups currently in the country.
3: And so that brings us on really to the, to, to, to the West, to the US, to, to, to Europe, other Western governments. Now, some of what Western governments want from the Taliban coincides with what the region wants, right? Obviously, the counterterrorism stuff is a top priority for the West, as much as it is for, for, for governments in the region, for, for neighbours. Other Western governments have sort of made the same noises about an inclusive government and a government that doesn't just include the Taliban, so that they also share to some degree with the region. Egress, getting people out, allowing people who, that want to leave to leave, uh, whether they're foreigners or Afghans who want to leave, making sure they have safe passage. That's sort of another priority for Western governments. And then you had this sort of bigger question of Western governments hoping, pushing the Taliban not to crack down on rivals and particularly important to respect Afghans' rights and, and freedoms, particularly those of minorities and especially important those of women. Now, Western governments, in turn, have some things that the Taliban wants, certainly the Taliban, as you've talked about, want recognition from regional governments, but ideally also from others too they 'd like sanctions relief and they would like aid. The question, I guess, is sort of how much they're going to compromise to get those, and whether the political debate in Western capitals, which is really very toxic about the the Taliban, whether that's going to allow diplomats to engage the group in a sort of serious back and forth about what its relationship with the outside world is going to look like?
0: I think um, what you saw with the the UN Security Council resolution and some of the statements recently from Zalmai Khalilzad, the American envoy, was a clear emphasis, as you say, on egress, just on allowing whoever wants to leave Afghanistan to, to leave. The international community could be biting off more than it can chew in the sense that uh, I don't know uh, how much appetite there will be, for example, in European countries for a sort of Angela Merkel style gesture of welcoming in uh, a million Syrians, you know, there, there could be a, a fair number of people who want to leave if if that's really what the international community is pushing for. In the, in the short term, um, there's a risk of a currency collapse. If uh, the Afghani is not defended, um, that would make it very hard for people to buy food. If the United States and the United Nations, um, don't say anything about sanctions in the short term. Um, There is a risk that uh, the existing sanctions on uh, the Taliban will be perceived as sanctions against the new government. Um, And uh, that, for example, could make it quite difficult to even just send a truckload of food into Afghanistan because then you'd be paying customs at a Taliban uh, customs point. The customs are a part of the Ministry of Finance if the new Minister of Finance is on the UN Security Council of 1988 uh, sanctions list, you've got a problem. Uh, So um, in the very short term, there is a risk that economic isolation will result in a deepening humanitarian catastrophe and uh, large numbers of Afghans trying to flee the country. So I think the international community really has a choice now about whether to respond emotionally uh, and try to punish uh, the new Taliban government um, or to take some really short-term steps to address the humanitarian situation. Keeping in mind, for example, that the World Food Programme has said that about half of the country now struggles to feed itself. And that's even before we see the consequences of, of what just happened.
2: So, Graham, can I ask a follow up question, not so much focusing on the crisis for the many who may be seeking to leave Afghanistan, but the humanitarian situation for the millions of Afghans who will remain in their country? Uh, How is the humanitarian picture for them now and looking in the in the near future?
0: I'm really glad you asked this question, Naz, because the fate of millions of ordinary Afghans has sort of fallen to the bottom of the agenda The reality is that uh, we've had two nasty droughts in the last three years in Afghanistan. Um, It has been the scene of the deadliest war on the planet Earth, which killed tens of thousands of people a year, but also displaced hundreds of thousands of people a year. So you have huge populations who have been fleeing for their lives, massive economic disruption. And now, abruptly, this multi-billion dollar a year war economy is going to come to a crashing end. Just on security spending alone, um, the international community has been pouring five to six billion dollars a year into fighting the Taliban in support for the Afghan security forces. Those security forces just evaporated and there are now uh, many, many unemployed men uh, going back to their villages it is a disaster of an almost unimaginable scale and, and really deserves international attention.
3: And Graeme, could I just ask a follow-up? And it's such an important point. What are, are the main obstacles to sort of addressing this, what is this sort of unfolding humanitarian catastrophe? Are the main obstacles now just getting the funds or are the obstacles sort of negotiating access and, and, and getting aid and stuff into to, to Taliban-controlled Afghanistan?
0: You, you saw a start to this um, last week when David Beasley, the head of the World Food Program, uh, arrived in Doha to negotiate with the Taliban and get access for food shipments. You also saw the WFP uh, thanking the government of Pakistan as they uh, try to start setting up air bridges. You've seen uh, the United Nations shifting some of its uh, footprint um, to Kazakhstan, uh, but keeping a number of essential staff uh, on the ground inside Afghanistan. Those efforts are going to need funding. They're going to need uh, legal top cover. Um, I mean, it's one thing for uh, Beasley to go negotiate with the Taliban because he's uh, protected to some extent by his UN status. But, you know, he's going to need to hire truckers. He's going to need to hire local implementing partners um, if he's going to want to move uh, food into the country. Um, And uh, as things stand right now, the situation with sanctions is so murky, Um, There there really needs to be some clarity on uh, what the legal status of the of the new Taliban government is and whether or not it's legal to deal with it.
3: But presumably you could continue to provide humanitarian aid through the through the U.N., through other agencies uh, if the if the Taliban allow that. Right. I mean, it doesn't necessarily have to go through the government itself or are there still complications even putting it through the, the, the U.N., for example?
0: So uh, this uh, situation is very similar to what you see in Houthi-controlled Yemen. You have a rebel group controlling a big chunk of a country, and millions of people will starve if the UN isn't able to access uh, northern Yemen. So that's why it was a huge problem when former President Trump listed the Houthis as terrorists, uh, because the World Food Program, you know, they're hiring local implementing partners. They're hiring local businessmen for, you know, it's you need to be dealing with uh, an entity with which you can deal legally. I mean, if you're you're driving a a truck through a Taliban checkpoint and you can't pay customs legally, you've got a serious problem. And so that's why you saw the entire humanitarian community really begging uh, the new uh, Biden administration to delist the Houthis. Um, and they did do that. Um, they delisted the Houthis without saying whether or not they thought the Houthis were terrorists. They just said, for humanitarian reasons, because uh, millions of people will starve otherwise, we are going to provide this uh, exemption to our, our sanctions regime. And so something like that has to be put in place very quickly because the price of bread is rising on the streets of Kabul.
3: Graham, Ibrahim, thanks so much for coming on. So Naz, there's a lot to talk about given the US withdrawal, the the chaos at the airport, and so importantly, as you know, as as we talked about at the end, this terrible humanitarian situation in the country. I don't know what are your what are your thoughts after after talking to Ibrahim and Graham?
2: Yeah, what a rich conversation. And I think as Graham pointed out at the end, while there has been so much attention on those who have been desperate to leave and those who have lost their lives trying to leave, and rightly so. Um, I think there is a risk that the world forgets about the millions of Afghans who who remain and who are
3: inside the country and will be in the months and years to come. Yeah, we actually have a note coming out this week that looks at the, the sort of terrible humanitarian situation that Graham and Ibrahim described, and that says that, you know, in essence, to prevent a, you know, a, a humanitarian disaster that will reverberate well beyond Afghanistan's borders, given the numbers of Afghans that are leaving... Uh, donors really, as as one of their top priorities, are going to have you know to some degree to set aside their concerns about the Taliban at least for the narrow purpose of sort of ensuring aid gets into Afghans, reaches the Afghan population, uh, you know, and they're going to have to work out ways to ensure that the the sanctions regimes don't um, don't stop that happening.
2: So Richard, I, I, picking up on on something you mentioned and reflecting on the conversation that we just had. You know, this is the the 20th anniversary this year, of course, not only of the September 11th attacks and the American invasion of Afghanistan, but also of the rise of the contemporary counterterrorism machine that touches everything from finance to banking, to policing, to passport control, to the use of armed force and intervention in multiple countries around the world. And much of that began 20 years ago uh, around the conversation of the Taliban and al-Qaeda. And I think the conversation today and reflecting on what's happened the last two weeks, this idea of U.S. soldiers fighting shoulder to shoulder with Taliban forces, it really, I think, must force a reckoning on the language of terrorism and far more importantly than the language, the laws and sanctions in place Uh, regarding terrorism. And so I think it's not just a question of how do we make the technical fixes that facilitate humanitarian assistance, or how do we rework the language of a Security Council resolution or an OFAC regulation in order to allow specific aid to get in, but how do we really use this as a way to think critically about the way in which the the discourse and the idea of terrorism has gone too far has become in a way not only absurd but also unworkable.
3: Yeah, that's so true. And and you know actually it colours the the challenge that I talked about too, right? Of engaging the Taliban. And it colours it in two ways. First, because for the whole world the top priority is counterterrorism, that the Taliban stops Al-Qaeda, other transnational militants from using Afghanistan as a safe haven. And there's a real chance that people, certainly the region, but, you know, maybe even others as well, sort of forgive a lot else if the Taliban can actually do that. So the way that counterterrorism sort of really distorts policy is, is one aspect of it. And then, you know, it also complicates engagement with, you know, Afghanistan's new leaders in essence because members of the Taliban are designated as terrorists and because they've been called terrorists for two decades by western leaders you know that makes the sort of necessary engagement the necessary diplomacy now much more fraught politically fraught at, at home i wanted to ask you as well is there anything that sort of struck you or or you found sort of particularly moving or striking over the past uh, over the past few weeks as the americans other internationals have withdrawn these chaotic and then tragic scenes at the airport and then these a lot of these sort of iconic sort of end of an era very moving images of what's been happening
2: yeah richard i i think there is this tendency and it's understandable and it's a human tendency to make the story about the us right so the the comparisons to vietnam and the incredibly moving uh, accounts of the many veterans who feel betrayed and dishonored by what has happened in the last few weeks. Um, And as valid and important as those stories are, I, I think I've been most struck by in thinking just about... The many Afghans who are in their homes, who are trying to send their children to school, who are wondering what the next few weeks is going to look like in their country and are not necessarily the focus of international attention and sort of dramatic uh, imagery these days.
3: Yeah, such a such an important point. Again, you know, we didn't talk about it during the interview, but I feel we should say something Too about these US drone strikes last week. Some of the details of this are still emerging, but it appears that this drone strike that was, you know, initially framed as a retaliation for the ISIS attack, and then it was framed as aimed at preventing another uh, ISIS attack, you know, it appears to have killed an innocent family that, you know, had nothing to do with ISIS. And in fact, it seems that some of the family members had even applied for US visas because they'd worked for the for, for the US. And, you know, if you look back on all the things that sort of went wrong in Afghanistan I mean, it's hard to single out one and you know there's so many different things you could point to but you know, the exclusion of the Taliban in the first place this sort of emphasis on counterterrorism again pulling off your point uh, counterterrorism rather than peacemaking or peace building the empowerment of kind of local strongmen who often used counterterrorism as a pretext for for targeting and killing their rivals Pakistan's role of course you know its unhappiness with the with the post-Taliban government, its hosting of the Taliban, the corruption, the predation of the Afghan state. You know, you can go on and on. But clearly in the countryside where the Taliban gathered strength, the drone strikes, the special forces raids, the abuses, the civilian casualties were a huge source of of, of anger, really kind of a recruitment boon for the Taliban. And that in one of its last acts before leaving, the US appears to have killed an, an innocent family like this time in Kabul. It's kind of just such a tragic reminder of kind of the human cost of, of the war in Afghanistan, the war in terror more broadly, and it, you know I should add that the Biden administration plans what it calls you know over the horizon airstrikes on suspected militants in the future, you know so it's a kind of it's this kind of sickening aspect of the war that's going to outlast the U.S. presence on the ground.
2: Hold Your Fire is a production of the International Crisis Group. I'm Naz Modersoday.
3: And I'm Richard Atwood. You can find more of our work on our website, crisisgroup.org, or follow us on Twitter at crisisgroup.
2: Thank you very much to our producers.
3: And thanks especially to our listeners. Please do leave us a question, a comment, a rating or review, and we hope you'll join us again next week.